Hi everyone. I trust that you are well. I trust that you've had a good week. Today's the fourth Sunday in Advent. Christmas is almost here. A very strange Christmas. For some, a very dark Christmas. And yet, I hope and pray that the darkness of this Christmas will enhance the light of the truth of this Christmas. That in Jesus we have Emmanuel, God with us. Last time we were together, we had a look at the faith of Joseph. And today we're going to have a look at the faith of Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 37. Very familiar words to us, but hopefully ones that will come to us with newness and freshness as we study them together today. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know what you think about when you hear the word Mary. Perhaps you think of a statue in a cathedral, or perhaps a cheap plastic figurine. Maybe you think about a picture on a Christmas card, or of a face in a painting. Mary's a fairly controversial figure within the Christian church. I remember one person saying that Mary is adored by Catholics and ignored by Protestants. I believe both of those extremes are unhelpful, but perhaps on balance it's the second extreme that is the most unhelpful. Because if as Protestants we believe that all scripture is inspired by God, then we need to take seriously the scripture's own statement about Mary. Blessed are you among women. I remember once reading an article where someone suggested that Mary should be a role model for all women. But I think that that would be very unhelpful. If Mary were only a role model for women, then the other 50% of the population would lose out. Mary should be a model for us all, whether male or female. 
And today I simply wanted to spend a few minutes looking at these verses in a bit more detail to see what it was about Mary that made her important for us today. There are a couple of words that come to mind when I read this passage. And the first word that comes to mind is the word ordinary. In contrast to some of the great paintings of Mary that we have in art galleries, in contrast to many of the mental pictures we may cherish about Mary, this passage tells us that Mary was just an ordinary young woman. She was an ordinary young Jewish woman. Not many of our paintings depict that aspect of her life. She appears to be very European in many of the medieval paintings, but she was a Jewish woman. And she was probably a very young Jewish woman. We read here that she was betrothed to be married to Joseph. And in those days, people didn't wait around until they'd finished their university degree to get married. They got married fairly young. Betrothal could take place when the couple were 13 or 14 years old. And so it's quite possible that Mary was still only in her late teens when the angel comes to visit her. Mary lived in a very ordinary town, a town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Nazareth was so unimportant that it isn't mentioned anywhere in the whole of the Old Testament. You may remember that years later, when Philip, one of the disciples, goes to tell his friend Nathaniel that they found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Nathaniel just falls about laughing and says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was the South African equivalent of Liudorenstadt, uh, with apologies to anyone who comes from that area. Nazareth was really one of the backwaters in Israel. We know that Mary was not from a wealthy family. Uh, neither was Joseph, for that matter. Joseph was a carpenter, a common labourer. And in fact, it seems that both of them were quite poor, because in the next chapter, Luke chapter 2, we read how Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to present him before the Lord, and they take a sacrifice with them. But it's not the usual sacrifice. Normally, people would sacrifice a lamb on those occasions, but Mary and Joseph cannot afford a lamb. And so they take along the offering that was prescribed for the poor people in Israel, two young pigeons. Mary was not from one of the famous centres in the world, London, Paris, Rome, Milan, Cape Town. <laughs> she was not among the wise and influential people of the world, accountant, doctor, lawyer, bishop. She was just a very ordinary young girl. And that's important. It's very important. One of my earliest memories of high school was when I was in Standard 6 and they had trials for the biathlon team. That's both running and swimming, both sports that I enjoyed and that I was fairly good at. And there were only about six of us that participated in the trials, and I did fairly well but the coach didn't choose me for the team. He took all the others. 
Perhaps it had something to do with the fact that I was only in Standard 6, and he didn't know me, but he knew the others. There wasn't a limit on how many people could enter. It wouldn't have hurt him to put me on the team, seeing as there were only six of us, but I wasn't chosen. And I remember summoning up all my Standard 6 courage to go and plead with him to let me on the team, but he wouldn't let me. And I can still feel the bitterness and disappointment of not being good enough. Some of you today may have far worse stories of rejection, maybe through racism or prejudice. You know what it's like to feel not good enough. Maybe sometimes that not feeling good enough filters through into our relationship with God. We suspect that God prefers the good people, the nice people, the people who seem to have it all together. But this passage reminds us that God is not only interested in the glamorous people, or the influential people, or the rich people. He is interested in ordinary people, because actually that's the only kind that there are. Ordinary people who are open to him and open to his working in their lives. If you read through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, you will discover that Mary is just one of the first on a very long list of ordinary people who accepted Jesus. In fact, if you read Luke's Gospel, you will see that it was the glamorous people who had the most difficulty accepting Jesus, so that at one point in his life, Jesus had to say to the crowds, I've come to call sinners, not those who think they are already good enough. And so today, if you don't feel good enough for God, if you don't feel righteous enough, then be encouraged. You are precisely the kind of person that God cares about the most. God is interested in ordinary people if we are open to him. Secondly, when I read this passage, the words thoughtful and gradual come to mind. I always presumed that Mary went straight from surprise to surrender in her response to Gabriel's message, but one writer has pointed out that there's actually a variety of different responses that Mary has that lead finally to joyful surrender. Luke tells us firstly that after Gabriel says, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you, Mary was greatly troubled. In other words, Mary reacted in the same way that any one of us would react if we saw an angel. She didn't say, how wonderful, an angel is speaking to me. She was greatly troubled to the extent that the angel had to say to her, don't be afraid. Luke also tells us that she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The Greek word that is used here can also mean to do an audit. In other words, Mary was literally adding things up. She was a thinker. We know that because in Luke chapter 2, after Luke has described the birth in Bethlehem and the visit of the shepherds to Mary and Joseph and their newborn son, Luke tells us that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. She was a thinker, 
She didn't accept things on face value or simply with her heart. She also accepted them with her mind. Even after Gabriel has explained, you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, Mary asks the question, how will this be? She expresses some doubt, not doubt that it can happen, but doubt about how it could happen. You may remember that this is actually Gabriel's second visit to Judea. The first visit was to a man, a man named Zechariah. But that first visit didn't go as well. Zechariah was a priest and an elder in a town in the hill country of Judea, And Gabriel goes and tells Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth are about to become parents in their old age. They're going to have a special son called John. When you read about Gabriel's visit to Zechariah and Gabriel's visit to Mary side by side, the similarities are quite striking. Both Zechariah and Mary are visited by an angel who greets them by name. We read that both of them are afraid and that the angel tells each of them not to be afraid. Both of them are told that they are going to become parents of sons. Both of them are given their children's names and are given a brief prediction about their children's future. But that's where the similarities end. Because Zechariah, the man, the priest, the one who knows God's laws, responds by saying, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. To which Gabriel responds, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. It's interesting that both Zechariah and Mary express doubt But one gets into trouble and the other one doesn't. What's the difference? Well, there is a kind of doubt that seeks insight and understanding. It's possible to have genuine concerns and doubts and fears and questions, but be willing to work through those on your way to God. One could describe this as faith-seeking understanding. But then it's possible to use doubts and questions as a way of hiding from God and what he wants to do in your life. Many people say that they have intellectual difficulties with the Christian faith, but often those difficulties are really just a cover and a shield to protect them because they know that if they were to believe, it would cost them. There are certain things that they would have to stop doing and certain things that they would have to start doing. Far easier to say that you can't believe in the resurrection, or that the Bible has too many contradictions, than to give up a relationship or give up a habit. Believing would cost too much. I think that a certain amount of genuine doubt is quite healthy, because the gospel story is pretty amazing. If you don't find yourself wondering how can this be, then maybe you haven't really grasped the message of the gospel. 
The message is that our creator God, the one who fashioned us and shaped us after we've ignored him and tried to live our lives in his world without reference to him, has come down to earth in the person of his son, has lived among us, has died on a cross, taking our sin and our shame to bring us back to himself. If you think about it, it's quite a remarkable message. And it's natural to have a few doubts and questions about that, as long as it's moving us towards God. But Mary moves on from there too. After the angel has clarified a bit more, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary responds with simple acceptance. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me, as you have said. She still doesn't understand everything, but she is willing to simply trust God. It's only later in the same chapter, after Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth and sees that what God has said is true, even your cousin Elizabeth is pregnant because nothing is impossible with God. It's only after Mary has received that confirmation that she moves further to heartfelt, joyful faith. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. This is true faith that moves beyond just mental acceptance and involves the whole self, mind, will and emotions. All this brings me to the third word that comes to mind when I read these verses, the word open that Mary was open to God and whatever God wanted to do in and through her life. I don't think we understand the depths of Mary's openness to God here. It's possibly true to say that Mary herself didn't understand all the implications of her saying yes to God. But Mary is an example to us here of openness and obedience to God. In a very real way, Mary gave her entire life over to God. She's engaged to be married. Those of you who are married will remember what a great feeling it was to be engaged. I remember Michelle and I sitting down together and working out all the plans for the wedding, working out where we would stay, me trying to work out whether I had enough money for the ring, it was an exciting time as we sat down and imagined our spending our whole lives together. Marriages in Mary's day were a little less romantic as they were generally arranged, and yet it was no less an exciting time in Mary's life, planning and thinking ahead. You can imagine her helping her mom with uh, getting her dowry together, perhaps her and her parents having many late-night talks about what marriage is all about, and yet within five minutes, Mary's life was turned upside down. If she accepted God's will for her life, it would change everything from that moment onwards. Instead of the excitement and joy of a wedding, uh, 
there would now be shame, as we looked at last time. Mary would be pregnant before her wedding day. Can you imagine her trying to explain the situation to Joseph? Imagine trying to explain to someone you love that you haven't been sleeping around, but that you are pregnant through the Holy Spirit. It's quite clear that Joseph didn't believe Mary. Uh, Matthew tells us that he wants to divorce her quietly. Unfortunately, the angel Gabriel makes yet another trip to earth to explain the situation to Joseph. But there's no mention of an angel being sent to Jesus' grandparents. Can you imagine the family conflict? Mary's mom and dad blaming Joseph, Joseph's mom and dad blaming Mary. And what about the town of Nazareth? God didn't send an angel to go and stand in the town square and explain the situation to everyone. In those days, it would have been a scandal. Some would have said that it was just a couple of kids who'd got themselves into trouble before the wedding night, but some of the more evil-minded would have questioned whether Joseph was even the father of the baby. In fact, as we saw last time, Mary's life may even have been in danger because the penalty for committing adultery was death by stoning. In verse 39, we read that Mary goes off to visit her relative Elizabeth and Zechariah. She knows that they will understand what she is going through, seeing as Elizabeth is also miraculously pregnant. But even there, we see a great contrast, because Elizabeth's whole village is celebrating the fact that Elizabeth is having a baby in her old age, whereas Mary's pregnancy was an embarrassment. In Luke chapter 2, we read about the famous census that Caesar Augustus issued, that everyone had to go to their hometown to register. That's how Mary and Joseph end up in Bethlehem. But actually, it was only the male head of the household who needed to go and register. Mary could have stayed at home. It's quite possible then that Joseph took Mary along with him so that she could escape the fuss and the performance at home. Mary went through all of that because she was willing to be obedient to God. But there was more. When Mary and Joseph go to present Jesus at the temple, they are met by an old man, Simeon, who prophesies the following words over Jesus. He says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the hearts of many will be revealed. And then turning to Mary, he says, And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Mary wasn't given any of the details at this stage. She wasn't told that within a few days their family would be running for their lives to Egypt, that this new little family would be uprooted from everything that was familiar to them, from all of their support structures, and have to live in a foreign country for a few years. Mary knew nothing of her son's growing up. She didn't know that he would leave home and wander around the countryside, acting strangely, quite frankly. Remember, there's a time in Jesus' ministry where his mother and brothers wanted to take him home because they thought that he was out of his mind. There was the day when Mary and her sons came to see Jesus, and someone said to him, Your mother and brothers are here. And Jesus said, Who are my mother and brothers? Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. A sword 
will pierce your own soul too. Joseph isn't mentioned again in the New Testament, and it's quite possible that he died early on in Jesus' life, meaning that Jesus, as the eldest son, should have been there to look after his mother. But when Jesus turned 30, Mary had to stand at the door to their house and wave Jesus goodbye as he began his ministry. And then there are those significant words in John chapter 19. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. When Mary said to the angel, I am the Lord's servant, and I am willing to accept whatever he wants, she wasn't handing herself over to God for nine months. She was giving up all her own plans and ambitions and dreams and handing over her entire life to God. Now, none of us will ever be asked to be open and obedient to God in the same way that Mary was asked to be. But I wonder in what areas God is calling you to be open and obedient to him. Maybe it's the openness of taking that very first big step of committing your life to him for the very first time. Perhaps you've been on the edge of the Christian faith for years You've been raising all sorts of questions and doubts, but all of those have really just been an excuse for a fear of commitment. Maybe for you, today is the day to accept all that Jesus has done for you and in turn commit your life to him. Maybe you need to be like Mary, who didn't have everything in place before she simply said yes to God. Maybe for you it would be the step of being obedient by being baptised, by making a public declaration of your commitment to follow God. Maybe it would be being open to full-time Christian service. Maybe our obedience and openness will be seen in some of the big areas of our lives, the job that we take, the person we decide to marry, the person we decide not to marry, But perhaps our obedience to God will simply be in the dozens of daily opportunities to do what is clearly God's will. To forgive someone. To consider others above ourselves. To be kind to someone. To demonstrate justice, righteousness and faithfulness. To avoid evil. Perhaps our being open to God will mean visiting someone and making someone a cup of coffee running an errand for someone when actually we had plans of our own, each day provides the opportunity to say, I am the Lord's servant. Are we prepared in the days that lie ahead to offer up our lives to God and be his servants? Remembering that Jesus said when we lose our lives for him, we actually truly find our lives. It won't always be easy. It wasn't easy for Mary. The angel calls her God's favoured one, but as one writer points out, Mary, God's favoured one, was blessed with having a child out of wedlock who would later be executed as a criminal. Openness and obedience to God will not always be easy or pleasant. We may wonder how we can ever truly be God's servants. But we have the assurance from this passage, nothing is impossible with God. Amen.